When it isn't the growing, the hunger so deep it hurts, it's the blood. No one told her about the blood. The split lips, the scrapes, the bloody noses. Motherhood, this week on Selected Shorts. She was a child of anxious, not proud love. We were poor and could not afford for her the soil of easy growth. I'm Kate Burton, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. We're thinking about mothers and motherhood on this show with the help of the memoirist and essayist Mary Carr and the novelist Celeste Ng as guest curators. As you might expect from these strong women, there are no hallmark moments. They are both moms, and they chose works that acknowledge that mothering is complicated. Our first story is Danielle Lazarin's Looking for a Thief, read by Heather Burns. It was introduced at Symphony Space by Celeste Ng. Looking for a Thief reminds us that motherhood is a gritty, bloody, Herculean, or maybe Sisyphean effort to raise a human being who can survive this world that we've brought them into. As I write my own, quote-unquote, domestic stories, looking for a thief is one of the models that I keep in my own mind. It's the truest portrait of modern motherhood that I've seen, that paradoxical condition in which you might pack a tent in your trunk, your escape plan, even as you'll never use it, in which resentment for what you have to do and deep gratitude for what you get to do somehow coexist. Now we'll hear... Danielle Lazarin's Looking for a Thief, read by Heather Burns. The boys are setting up a tent in the dining room. Margaret in the kitchen can hear the chairs squeaking and moaning against the floors. Wesley's exaggerating, grunting as Matthew directs the boys to push. After she puts the chicken in the oven, she goes to check on them, rinsing her hands in the sink beforehand. Indeed, the dining room table is now crooked against the far wall, the chairs lined up like executioners on the perimeter. In the middle, a tent she and Ian camped in a long time ago, sun-bleached and ratty at half-mast. The boys rigged it to the legs of the dining room table. It, It worked well enough to hold them. Its opening faces the window, outside which snow steadily falls. It has been snowing for three days, through the weekend, and now Monday, a snow day from school. Wesley's socks are unmatched, and one of them, likely belonging to Jonas, flops off the tip of his toe. Wesley scratches his nose, surveying the scene. I don't think that's right, he says, pointing to a corner whose poles bend in the wrong direction. Wesley is the baby, and he has just discovered that he can correct his brothers and sometimes even be right. Matthew crawls out from inside the tent on his knees and expects the corner to which Wesley is still insistently pointing. Huh, he says as though it matters, and goes back in to perform some other operation. Now, Margaret wants to be able to help, you know, to lay the tent on the ground and direct the boys step by step as she directed Ian so many years ago. 
but she wouldn't know how to put it together anymore. And when Ian comes home in the navy blue darkness of evening, he slides open the dining room's pocket door. Margaret can hear it moving along its rails from the study where she is checking her email. No news yet of when the new pages for the cookbook she's testing will arrive. The messengers delayed by the current chaos of public transit. The book's author too temperamental, too paranoid to send it over email. Hello in there, she hears Ian call out. Hello, the boys reply, each greeting tripping on the end of the one before. What you pretending in there? Ian spent all day at the airport, trying and failing to get on a flight to Atlanta for a meeting, and, and she can hear the dislocation in his voice. Pretending you're out in the tundra, the North Pole, he tries. In the moments of the boy's silence, an email comes through from the editor. Tomorrow, she's promised they'll get a messenger to her. Yeah, says Jonas, finally, and Margaret envisions her son shrugging as he does so, the tense fabric bulging out with his shoulder. And four years ago, when the boys were little, they'd lived in Manhattan. She'd always knew they'd leave. They'd agreed on the move. They'd, they'd always agreed on those kinds of things. Ian says he remembers the moment he decided it was enough. When they had all three on the subway one spring morning, the boys sliding around the concave orange seats, the, the feeling that there weren't enough hands to keep them in place. They tell these stories for the first year or two after they moved to New Jersey, which is barely less expensive, and then they stop explaining. At first, she felt relief you know, at the just right amount of space between her and her neighbors at the fenced yard and the one perfect little school and the other defectors. New York City, a mistake they're all supposed to be recovering from. Now, Margaret doesn't keep things from their past, not their little hospital ID bracelets or fur shoes or the old Metro cards Jonas used to run along the walls of their apartment, which she'd find in his jacket pockets, not her wedding invitation or clothes that don't fit anymore. Margaret doesn't keep things, but Ian does. And that night, she's in their bathroom looking in the vanity for a bar of soap someone brought as a housewarming gift all those years ago when she finds a box of teeth in a drawer. Now, there are two of these boxes, actually, orange square plastic containers with hinged lids that snap into place, though there are three children, all of whom have lost teeth, exchanging them for dollar bills they would often lose a few days later. She walks out into their bedroom, both boxes in one hand. <laughs> what the fuck is this? She asks Ian, laughing. I didn't want to throw them out he says, undoing the buttons on his shirt. Down the hall, she hears Jonas hacking, a cough he hasn't been able to shake for weeks. And what are we doing with them? She rattles the boxes one by one. Shit, they're all mixed up, aren't they? <laughs> she can't stop laughing. He turns a light pink. They might want them one day. And you'll separate them out? Oh, come on he says, and turns away from her as he takes off the rest of his clothes. She bites her lip, 
to keep the laughter from coming returns to the bathroom. And she's about to drop the boxes into the small wastebasket under the sink, but instead puts them back in Ian's side of the vanity in a, a drawer with travel-size shaving cream cans and an unopened package of dental floss. He's under the covers when she gets into bed, turned on his side, reading a work report. If she were feeling kinder, would she suggest they go camping? And they used to strip down to nothing in that tent, their skin papery in the cold. He always offered to be on the ground, sliding under her. Fun is what he says when people ask what it's like to have three boys, the inquirer giving Margaret a sympathetic look as if wildness cannot be what she is after, too. But she chased Ian, who was older and, and so confident, even at 25 when she met him. And he always called her that, fun. So maybe she's the one who was chased domesticated. But she wanted this. She chose it. In bed, she puts her hand on the back of his neck. He murmurs his good night, shimmies his body closer to the cast of the bedside light. Jonas wakes up in the middle of the night hungry. This happens every few months. He's at their bedroom door, the hall light on behind him. Ian wakes up just to wake her, and pokes his finger into her back. She swings out of bed and takes Jonas by the hand to the kitchen, where both of them recoil at the bright light of the refrigerator. He eats leftover spaghetti, barely warmed in the microwave in gulps, and then says, I feel better, <laughs> before they walk upstairs together and get back into their own beds. Last week, it was Wesley who woke up. When it isn't the growing, the hunger so deep it hurts, it's the blood. No one told her about the blood. Not of childbirth or the return of her period earlier with every baby, just as she'd had enough of the bodily fluids of others. Those cycles women know. News? The split lips, the scrapes, the bloody noses, that that beautiful red Hansel and Gretel crumb trail from the boys' bedroom to theirs, Wesley screaming, his face pressed into her nightshirt till they were both covered. The next morning, she woke up and walked the path back to his bedroom with a damp washcloth, useless against what he'd smeared with the back of his hand on the grain of the wallpaper they'd always planned to remove. Well, at least, she thinks, she does not have girls. You will not have wastebaskets overflowing with bloody pads. But girls are taught to be discreet. Boys who shout their own terror make a mess of it and take you down with them. At breakfast the next morning, before they sort through the pile of hats and gloves and boots for the walk through the snow to the bus stop knee-high where it's been plowed to the sidewalk's edges, the boys move through the morning quietly. Matthew and Jonas are done with breakfast, with getting dressed and packing their school bags. But not Wesley. Ian left for the airport in darkness. His alarm, though, it vibrated, waking her too at 4.15. But she wasn't able to fall back asleep. Come on now, she says to Wes, who has only pushed his fingers into his toast. It's time to start eating. I want to stay home. 
he says, his face crumpling, the, the tiny bite of toast he conceded, muffling his sentence. She looks away from his open mouth and sips her coffee. You can't, she says, calling him honey, apologizing. I have to work. I can be quiet he says through tears. You have to go to school, she says. And he slams his fist on the table and screams, I want to stay home. It's not a choice. Yes, it is, he says. You have to go and you have to stop crying, she says. No! And Wesley pushes his plate across the table. I will not stop crying. Then out, she says, pointing to the yard. You can't do that in here. He goes. He's always followed instructions. <laughs> she picks up his plate and lets it land loudly in the sink. She's harder on him than she was on the others because he's the last one, because he wasn't really wanted, and because she is harder because of that fact. She leaves him out there in a protracted weep, shutting the glass door on him so she hears him less as she loads the dishwasher. Outside, Wesley stomps his feet, throws his head back, but she barely looks in the direction of the yard. The neighbors can hear, she's sure. She leaves the door unlocked and goes out to get him when he bangs on it so hard she thinks it might break. They've missed the school bus by now. And after she drops them off, she finds herself driving mindlessly around the jagged outline of the town park, past the houses they'd admired and quickly learned they couldn't afford. She's tried this before, going for a drive, but it does not help. There's nothing mind-clearing about knowing you could drive forever, for days, for weeks, and not land anywhere far enough away from your own life to pretend you can even imagine other choices. In the city, when she needed to be alone, she would undo all the locks and sit outside in the building hallway, just outside the door, the chain stuffed between the door and the frame. The floor was dirty, but it was cool, and it was outside. And if one of the boys asked where she was, it was always Jonas. She'd say she was throwing out the trash and wash her hands at the sink when she was discovered missing. But they rarely did. When she did go out with the trash or recycling, really, did they worry she wouldn't return? A day after the boys go back to school, the tent still stands in the dining room. She dismantles it late in the morning when she should be working, but the power is wonky and she needs the kitchen outlets. In the garage, she turns the circuit on and off, but it, it does not help. She puts the tent in the trunk of her car, not in the attic where it was, or in the basement where it will be easier to find when they need it next. But what if she needs it next? It's a just-in-case move in and of itself ridiculous. She wouldn't go live in a tent. But she might. She could. The important thing to remember is that she could. The tent folds up so nicely sits so unobtrusively in the top left corner of the trunk, you can put groceries on top of it, a pile of ice skates or jackets cast aside because it's too warm inside or outside because you've miscalculated, the jackets with the names of their brothers written in on the neck, their shared last name, not hers. 
The tent sits so unobtrusively she will forget about it. And then it is Thursday and she picks them up at school in the car because she's already out getting a set of ingredients she forgot to buy yesterday and she's close to school. And how the boys love to be picked up. How they love to get in a warm car. Though at first she insisted after the move that they'd walk to school. And that was why they moved to this town, wasn't it? To pretend they were not giving up all that much? She takes their backpacks into the front seat next to her. Matthew is in the middle, Jonas behind her, Wesley behind the passenger seat. She waits for them to buckle. She asks how their day was, and two of the three mumble, good. Nothing exciting, huh? She asks as they wait to exit the carpool line. Jonas says, there was a lockdown today. Here they all are, unharmed, behind her. No phone calls, no news vans. A drill, she asks. It's twice a year they do these, you know, practice playing dead in the classroom. Before the older boys can answer, the little one says, they were looking for a thief. She catches the older one's eye in the mirror. Do not, she says. And he doesn't. They had to check the whole building, Wesley says, making his hands large in his lap. It's a big building, she says. It took like four hours, he says. And then we had Jim, says Jonas. Jim class, the second to last block of the day. Some days his face is still a touch pink when he comes home. They didn't find him, Wesley says. She takes him to the bakery in town where she buys herself a coffee and each of them a donut. It's already dark, it's not even five o'clock. The coffee will keep her awake tonight, half decaf, she remembers to ask for. Wesley keeps asking why they're getting specials, which is what he calls sweets. It's a word Margaret and Ian tried to use to talk around the other boys some years ago. No one answers Wes to his satisfaction. He doesn't finish his donut, offers the rest of it to Margaret and the other two boys who both shake their heads no. And Matthew knocks his lukewarm hot chocolate across the tabletop onto both his brothers, soaking Jonas's pants and Wesley's coat, which he crumpled up next to him. Let's just get home, she says to them when Jonas starts to whine about the mess, gagging over the smell of the sugary milk, even as the word feels false in her mouth. That night, after the boys are in bed, Margaret tells Ian back from his trip about sending Wesley out into the yard the other morning. I feel bad, she says as they pull fresh sheets on the bed from opposite sides of the mattress. He won't remember it, he reassures her. You did fine. She knows he's right. Wesley would remember the things that make him want to be with her again tomorrow. More snow tonight, Ian says in the dark bedroom. He's exhausted, asleep in minutes. Everyone sleeps through the night, even Margaret. The snow comes, but school is still on, though Ian's office is closed. It's worse, apparently, in Manhattan. He takes the boys to the bus stop, not even wearing a coat. In the kitchen, she scrubs three pounds of potatoes for a gratin she's certain no one will like, but that she'll serve on the side of dinner. The weather hasn't moved her deadlines. She takes an afternoon shower while the gratin is in the oven and offers to be the one who waits out at the corner for the bus to show up, though her hair is still wet. 
She touches each of the boys as they come off the bus, but Wes is the only one who takes her hand, though he releases it shortly after so he can scratch his nose. A few hours after she falls asleep that night, she wakes up, imagining she hears the boys asking for her, but it's another house noise. Four years, she hasn't learned all of them yet. Late Saturday morning, Ian drives her to the train station, the one a bit farther from the house because it's a better line to be on. The boys are headed to a movie at the library and out to lunch, the day packed with plans while she spends hers in Manhattan with a friend. Stop, Jonas says from the back seat. Stop! Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, shouts Wesley. He's counting! Jonas whines. So what, says Ian. Let a dude count. Wesley rambles on, numbers falling from his mouth at random. It's annoying, Jonas says, smacking his own thigh in frustration. Flower sign, Wesley shouts as they pass a highway memorial. And she's glad he doesn't ask what they are. Ian doesn't like to lie to him, and his brothers know. And when Matthew first heard about death... It was months of night wakings and tantrums of impossible questions. Will you be with me when I die? Who's, who's, who's going to die first, me or Jonas or, or Daddy? Will the dirt get into my eyes? One of her friends who stayed in the city takes every opening to remind her of the danger of driving. Be careful, she says, as though Margaret is not. Margaret doesn't say anything as the boys continue to argue. She should have gone to the other station. The transfer is now seeming worth it. She waves goodbye to the boys in the back seat. Where are you going? Jonas only now asks. She touches Ian's knee as she gets out of the car. Good luck, she says in parting. Lunch with her friend Caroline is gossip about their old neighborhood where neither of them lives nor visits anymore. Discussions about who is stuck around too long, who is doing better than expected, who is leaving for a job or school or the Midwestern city they grew up in. They write down the titles of books for one another, the names of doctors, brands of mascara. Caroline makes inappropriate jokes about the waiter working the other side of the restaurant, blonde and chisel-jawed. She asks after the boys. Margaret waves the talk of them away, the usual. They drink coffee and Bloody Marys. It's been so long since the neighborhood playgroup where they met, and they don't lie to each other, not then and especially not now. On her last trip into the city, Margaret ran into one of the other women from that group, Amy, who still lived in the neighborhood, but she confessed as they rode from 23rd Street downtown that she too was curious about New Jersey. She asked about the real estate and the schools, which Margaret described as honestly as she could. The work of a house, the unevenness of the classroom teachers, the evening traffic, something she forgot existed. But you're happy, Amy insisted as they were squeezed closer together by another pack of commuters. And for Amy, who had so much trouble breastfeeding she'd endured bleeding nipples for the first two months of her baby's life, Margaret answered yes that day on the train because it was the answer she wanted. 
And because Amy must be someone else beyond those first feral months they'd spent together in rooms full of toys and half-eaten bagels, someone else she doesn't really know, and this is how you talk to strangers. Margaret relays the story about Amy, whom she and Caroline called Saint Amy after Catherine or Agatha, whichever saint it was who bled in the same way, torture. Caroline rolls her eyes. She's sweet, says Margaret. She's always heard just what she wants to. Margaret's phone, resting on the table, vibrates three times. Go ahead, her friend says. She still has a baby at home and a husband who counts the hours she's away, one of the ones who keeps score. Boys want to put up tent again. Looked in basement slash their room. Did I miss it? Arg. Margaret quickly taps out, don't know, sorry, love, and puts her phone back into her coat pocket. (laughs) It's Ian looking for something, she says to her friend. Dear God, every last one of them does that, don't they, Caroline says. And then while her friend is in the bathroom, Margaret, a a full Bloody Mary in her, types, try the trunk, my car, long story. She holds the phone in her hand, waiting. She licks the salt, pink and expensive and mineral, from the rim of the glass and rubs it into the pockets of her cheeks with her tongue. And he sends back a face with its tongue out, its eyes closed. Weirdo, he says. The server takes her empty glass before she can take more salt. She orders two more for her and Caroline. Catch up, she says when her friend returns from the bathroom. When are you back? He texts half an hour later, and she pretends she doesn't see it. Not till she's already on her way home. On Sunday, after the boys have been tucked in bed, Margaret does the dishes, the warm water an antidote to the drafty window over the sink to the cold tile floors. Ian calls her name from the study. She keeps washing, waiting for him to come to her. She can hear the boys still settling into bed, the floor creaking as they turn off the lights, pull the blankets up over their shoulders, down to cover their feet. The house already feels small. Sound carries. Ian calls her name again, and she turns off the water at the sound of worry in his voice. In the study, he's standing away from the computer, hands on his hips, like how he watches Matthew's flag football games. Did you read that email? He asks, pointing at the computer from the school. The one about the lockdown? You did. The boys told me when I picked them up. Why didn't you tell me? It was already over. The email is three days old. It's one line about a false report of a perpetrator on campus, the rest an assurance of a plan. Margaret deleted it when it came through, seeing it was just a slightly modified version of the one they received with the safety protocols, fire, weather, shooters at the start of every year. You're on the list, she says. They're never important. He presses his fingers to his forehead, exhales loudly. And she thinks of all the things he has not told her. The time Wes lost a sneaker to a muddy pond and she looked for it at home for nearly an hour before calling him at work, thinking she was losing her mind. His uncle's bone cancer. Parties he'd promised them to and groceries they'd ran out of. But really, had she wanted to know those things? I mean, did they seem once she did know, like secrets? She knows so well the burden of being told of knowing, 
and how impossible it is to unknow, to forget, the tent and gym class and thieves. It's so fucked up, he says. And she could say, you didn't think we'd be safe here, did you? But he'd think she was calling him a fool, which really she is. But she understands, too, that someone in the family has to be the one who forgets just enough every now and then so they can keep moving forward. She pulls his hand from his forehead, closes it in both of hers. I know. They stand like this in front of the old couch in the study till his thumb starts to move against her palm and she steps toward him and takes his other hand too. That was Heather Burns reading Danielle Lazarin's Looking for a Thief. I'm Kate Burton. There are just so many different ways to think about this subject. I had a powerhouse mom, Sybil Williams, Burton Christopher. Um, and I think the best advice, I got a lot of amazing advice from my mother, but uh, one of the greatest things she ever said, and this was the British in her, children love boundaries. I think I passed it on, but anyway, we'll see. <laughs> when we return, one mother's self-portrait. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Kate Burton. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. When you do, you'll get episodes of our spin-off podcast, Selected Shorts, Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for both shows on iTunes and hit subscribe. On this show, we're listening to stories about motherhood. I got a chance to read our second one, Tilly Olson's I Stand Here Ironing, introduced at Symphony Space by Mary Carr. Our final story is a literary and feminist classic, one read back on this stage in 1985, and we wanted to revisit it. You'll hear why. Tilly Olson produced relatively little work, partly because she was a mother, and she had some sorely limited economic choices at that time. Uh, not that we, you know, I'm not even going to start. But the stories she did finish are touchstones of the early women's movement. I first taught I Stand Here Ironing at Tufts back in a women's lit class when I was knocked up 30-some-odd years ago. That year I made $9,000, and I despaired of ever being able to afford child care or to find time to write or in any way live above the poverty line. 
Motherhood is often rendered in these lacy, sugar-spun terms, and Olson's rendering of the real torment we're doomed to when we're worrying about our children, especially about a daughter, always haunted me. Mary Carr from the stage at Symphony Space. Here's I Stand Here Ironing. I stand here ironing, and what you asked me moves tormented back and forth with the iron. I wish you would manage the time to come in and talk with me about your daughter. I'm sure you can help me understand her. She's a youngster who needs help and whom I'm deeply interested in helping. Who needs help. Even if I came, what good would it do? You think because I am her mother I have a key or that in some way you could use me as a key? She has lived for 19 years. There is all that life that has happened outside of me, beyond me. And when is there time to remember, to sift, to weigh, to estimate, to total? I will start and there will be an interruption and I will have to gather it all together again. Or I will become engulfed with all I did or did not do with what should have been and what cannot be helped. She was a beautiful baby. The first and only one of our five that was beautiful at birth. You do not guess how new and uneasy her tenancy in her now loveliness. You did not know her all those years. She was thought homely or see her poring over her baby pictures, making me tell her over and over how beautiful she had been and would be, I would tell her, and was now to the seeing eye. But the seeing eyes were few or non-existent, including mine. I nursed her. They feel that's important nowadays. I nursed all the children, but with her, with all the fierce rigidity of first motherhood, I did like the books then said. Though her cries battered me to trembling and my breasts ached with swollenness, I waited till the clock decreed. Why do I put that first? I do not even know if it matters or if it explains anything. She was a beautiful baby. She blew shining bubbles of sound. She loved motion, loved light, loved color and music and textures. She would lie on the floor in her blue overalls, patting the surface so hard in ecstasy, her hands and feet would blur. She was a miracle to me, but when she was eight months old, I had to leave her daytimes with the woman downstairs to whom she was no miracle at all, for I worked or looked for work, and for Emily's father, who could no longer endure, he wrote in his goodbye note, sharing want with us. I was 19. It was the pre-relief, pre-WPA world of the Depression. I would start running as soon as I got off the streetcar, running up the stairs, the place smelling sour, and awake or asleep to startle awake. When she saw me, she would break into a clogged weeping that could not be comforted, a weeping I can hear yet. After a while, I found a job hashing at night so I could be with her days, and it was better. But it came to where I had to bring her to his family and leave her. 
It took a long time to raise the money for her fare back. Then she got chicken pox and I had to wait longer. When she finally came, I hardly knew her. Walking quick and nervous like her father, looking like her father, thin and dressed in a shoddy red that yellowed her skin and glared at the pockmarks, all the baby loveliness gone. She was two, old enough for nursery school, they said, and I did not know then what I know now, the fatigue of the long day and the lacerations of group life in nurseries that are only parking places for children except that it would have made no difference if I had known. It was the only place there was. It was the only way we could be together, the only way I could hold a job. And even without knowing, I knew. I knew the teacher that was evil because all these years it has curdled into my memory. The little boy hunched in the corner, her rasp, why aren't you outside? Because Alvin hits you? That's no reason. Go out, scaredy. I knew Emily hated it, even if she did not clutch and implore, don't go, mommy, like the other children's mornings. She always had a reason why we should stay home. Mama, you look sick. Mama, I feel sick. Mama, the teachers aren't there today, they're sick. Mama, we can't go, there was a fire there last night. Mama, it's a holiday today, no school, they told me. But never a direct protest, never rebellion. I think of our others in their three, four-year-oldness, the explosions, the tempers, the denunciations, the demands, and I feel suddenly ill. I put the iron down. What in me demanded that goodness in her? And what was the cost, the cost to her of such goodness? The old man living in the back once said in his gentle way, you should smile at Emily more when you look at her. What was in my face when I looked at her? I loved her. There were all the acts of love. It was only with the others I remembered what he said, and it was the face of joy and not of care or tightness or worry I turned to them. Too late for Emily. She does not smile easily let alone almost always as her brothers and sisters do. Her face is closed and somber, but when she wants, how fluid. You must have seen it in her pantomimes. You spoke of her rare gift for comedy on the stage that rouses a laughter out of the audience so dear they applaud and applaud and do not want to let her go. Where does it come from, that comedy? There was none of it in her when she came back to me that second time after I had to send her away again. She had a new daddy now to learn to love, and I think perhaps it was a better time. Except when we left her alone nights, telling ourselves she was old enough. Can't you go some other time, Mommy, like tomorrow? She would ask. Will it be just a little while you'll be gone? Do you promise? The time we came back, the front door opened, the clock on the floor in the hall. She rigid awake. It wasn't just a little while. I didn't cry. Three times I called you, just three times, and then I ran downstairs to open the door so you could come faster. The clock talked loud. I threw it away. It scared me what it talked. She said the clock talked loud again that night. I went to the hospital to have Susan. 
She was delirious with the fever that comes before red measles, but she was fully conscious all the week I was gone, and the week after we were home, when she could not come near the new baby or me. She did not get well. She stayed skeleton thin, not wanting to eat, and night after night she had nightmares. She would call for me, and I would rouse from exhaustion to sleepily call back, You're all right, darling. Go to sleep. It's just a dream. And if she still called in a sterner voice, now go to sleep, Emily. There's nothing to hurt you. Twice, only twice, when I had to get up for Susan anyhow, I went in to sit with her. Now, when it is too late, as if she would let me hold and comfort her like I do the others, I get up and go to her at once at her moan or restless stirring. Are you awake, Emily? Can I get you something? And the answer is always the same, no. I'm all right. Go back to sleep, mother. They persuaded me at the clinic to send her away to a convalescent home in the country where she can have the kind of food and care you can't manage for her, and you'll be free to concentrate on the new baby. They still send children to that place. I see pictures on the society page of sleek young women planning affairs to raise money for it, or dancing at the affairs, or decorating Easter eggs, or filling Christmas stockings for the children. They never have a picture of the children, so I do not know if the girls still wear those gigantic red bows and the ravaged looks on the every other Sunday when parents can come to visit unless otherwise notified. As we were notified the first six weeks. Oh. It is a handsome place. Green lawns and tall trees and fluted flower beds. High up on the balconies of each cottage, the children stand, the girls in their red bows and white dresses, the boys in white suits and giant red ties. The parents stand below, shrieking up to be heard, and the children shriek down to be heard, and between them the invisible wall, not to be contaminated by parental germs or physical affection. There was a tiny girl who always stood hand in hand with Emily. Her parents never came. One visit, she was gone. They moved her to Rose College, Emily shouted in explanation. They don't like you to love anybody here. She wrote once a week, the labored writing of a seven-year-old. I am fine. How is the baby? If I write my letter nicely, I will have a star. Love. There never was a star. We wrote every other day letters she could never hold or keep, but only hear read once. We simply do not have room for children to keep any personal possessions. They patiently explained when we pieced one Sunday's shrieking together to plead how much it would mean to Emily, who loved so to keep things, to be allowed to keep her letters and cards. Each visit, she looked frailer. She isn't eating, they told us. They had runny eggs for breakfast or mush with lumps, Emily said later. I'd hold it in my mouth and not swallow. Nothing ever tasted good just when they had chicken. It took us eight months to get her released home, and only the fact that she gained back so little of her seven lost pounds convinced the social worker. I used to try to hold and love her after she came back, but her body would stay stiff, and after a while she'd push away. She ate little, 
Food sickened her, and I think much of life too. Oh, she had physical lightness and brightness twinkling by on skates, bouncing like a ball up and down, up and down over the jump rope, skimming over the hill, but these were momentary. She fretted about her appearance, thin and dark and foreign-looking at a time when every little girl was supposed to look or thought she should look like a chubby blonde replica of Shirley Temple. The doorbell sometimes rang for her, but no one seemed to come and play in the house or be a best friend, maybe because we moved so much. There was a boy she loved painfully through two school semesters. Months later, she told me how she had taken pennies from my purse to buy him candy. Licorice was his favorite, and I brought him some every day, but he still liked Jennifer better than me. Why, Mommy? The kind of question for which there is no answer. School was a worry to her. She was not glib or quick in a world where glibness and quickness were easily confused with ability to learn. To her overworked and exasperated teachers, she was an overconscientious, slow learner who kept trying to catch up and was absent entirely too often. I let her be absent, though sometimes the illness was imaginary. How different from my now strictness about attendance with the others. I wasn't working. We had a new baby. I was home anyhow. Sometimes after Susan grew too old, I would keep her home from school too, to have them all together. Mostly, Emily had asthma. And her breathing, harsh and labored, would fill the house with a curiously tranquil sound. I would bring the two old dresser mirrors and her boxes of collections to her bed. She would select beads and single earrings, bottle tops and shells, dried flowers and pebbles, old postcards and scraps, all sorts of oddments. Then she and Susan would play Kingdom, setting up landscapes and furniture, peopling them with action. Those were the only times of peaceful companionship between her and Susan. I have edged away from it, that poisonous feeling between them, that terrible balancing of hurt and needs I had to do between the two, and did so badly those early years. Ugh, there are conflicts between the others two, each one human, needing, demanding, hurting, taking, but only between Emily and Susan, no, Emily towards Susan, that corroding resentment. It seems so obvious on the surface, yet it is not obvious. Susan, the second child, Susan, golden and curly-haired and chubby, quick and articulate and assured, everything in appearance and manner Emily was not. Susan, not able to resist Emily's precious things, losing or sometimes clumsily breaking them. Susan telling jokes and riddles to company for applause while Emily sat silent. To say to me later, that was my riddle, mother. I told it to Susan. Susan, who for all the five years difference in age was just a year behind Emily in developing physically. I am glad for that slow physical development that widened the difference between her and her contemporaries, though she suffered over it. She was too vulnerable for that terrible world of youthful competition, of preening and parading, of constant measuring of yourself against every other, of envy. If I had that copper hair, if I had that skin. She tormented herself enough about not looking like the others. There was enough of the unsureness, the having to be conscious of words before you speak, the constant caring. What are they thinking of me? Without having it all magnified by the merciless physical drives. Ronnie is calling. He is wet, and I change him. 
It is rare there is such a cry now. That time of motherhood is almost behind me when the earth is not one's own, but must always be racked and listening for the child cry, the child call. We sit for a while and I hold him, looking out over the city spread in charcoal with its soft aisles of light. Sugarly, he breathes and curls closer. I carry him back to bed, asleep. Sugarly, a funny word. A family word, inherited from Emily, invented by her to say, comfort. In this and other ways, she leaves her seal, I say aloud, and startle at my saying it. What do I mean? What did I start to gather together to try and make coherent? I was at the terrible growing years, war years. I do not remember them well. I was working, there were four smaller ones now, there was not time for her. She had to help be a mother and housekeeper and shopper. She had to set her seal. Mornings of crisis and near hysteria, trying to get lunches packed, hair combed, coats and shoes found, everyone to school or childcare on time, the baby ready for transportation. And always the paper scribbled on by a smaller one, the book looked at by Susan then mislaid, the homework not done. Running out to that huge school where she was one, she was lost, she was a drop, suffering over the unpreparedness, stammering and unsure in her classes. There was so little time left at night after the kids were bedded down. She would struggle over books, always eating. It was in those years she developed her enormous appetite that is legendary in our family. And I would be ironing or preparing food for the next day or writing female to Bill or tending the baby. Sometimes to make me laugh or out of her despair, she would imitate happenings or types at school. I think I said once, why don't you do something like this at the school amateur show? One morning, she phoned me at work, hardly understandable through the weeping. Mother, I did it. I won, I won. They gave me first prize. They clapped and clapped and wouldn't let me go. Now, suddenly, she was somebody. And as imprisoned in her difference as she had been in anonymity. She began to be asked to perform at other high schools, even in colleges, then at city and statewide affairs. The first one we went to, I only recognized her at that first moment when thin, shy, she almost drowned herself into the curtains. Then, was this Emily? The control, the command, the convulsing and deadly clowning, the spell, then the roaring, stamping audience, unwilling to let this rare and precious laughter out of their lives. Afterwards, you ought to do something about her with a gift like that. But without money or knowing how, what does one do? We have left it all to her, and the gift has as often eddied inside, clogged and clotted, as been used and growing. She is coming. She runs up the stairs two at a time with her light, graceful step, and I know she is happy tonight. Whatever it was that occasioned your call, did not happen today. Aren't you going to finish the ironing, mother? 
I mean, Whistler painted his mother in a rocker. I'd have to paint mine standing over an ironing board. This is one of her communicative nights, and she tells me everything and nothing as she fixes herself a plate of food out of the icebox. She is so lovely. Why did you want me to come in at all? Why were you concerned? She will find her way. She starts up the stairs to bed. Don't get me up with the rest in the morning. But I thought you were having midterms. Oh, those. She comes back in, kisses me, and says quite lightly, in a couple of years when we'll all be Adam dead, they won't matter a bit. <laughs> she has said it before. She believes it. But because I have been dredging the past and all that compounds a human being is so heavy and meaningful in me, I cannot endure it tonight. I will never total it all. I will never come in to say, she was a child seldom smiled at. Her father left me before she was a year old. I had to work her first six years when there was work, or I sent her home and to his relatives. There were years she had care she hated. She was dark and thin and foreign-looking in a world where the prestige went to blondedness and curly hair and dimples. She was slow where glibness was prized. She was a child of anxious, not proud, love. We were poor and could not afford for her the soil of easy growth. I was a young mother. I was a distracted mother. There were the other children pushing up, demanding. Her younger sister seemed all that she was not. There were years she did not want me to touch her. She kept too much in herself. Her life was such she had to keep too much in herself. My wisdom came too late. She has much to her, and probably nothing will come of it. She is a child of her age, of depression, of war, of fear. Let her be. So all that is in her will not bloom. But in how many does it? There is still enough to live by. Only help her to know. Help make it so there is cause for her to know that she is more than this dress on the ironing board, helpless before the iron. That was my reading of Tilly Olson's I Stand Here Ironing. Tilly Olson really captures what it is to be the mother of a complicated child and to not really know what their possibilities are and to wonder and fret. And then suddenly the sun comes through the clouds and you realize they're going to be okay. I'm Kate Burton. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. 
Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Cullman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Additional support for this program comes from this station. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space.